Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This stand at Brackfontaine on the Eland River appears to have been one of the finest deeds of arms of the war. Australians have been so split up during their campaign that though their valour and efficiency were universally recognised, they had no single large exploit which they could call their own. But now they can point to England's river as proudly as the Canadians at Pardberg. They were sworn to die before the white flag would wave above them. And so fortune yielded, as fortune will when brave men set their teeth. When the ballad makers of Australia seek for a subject, let them turn to England's river, for there was no finer fighting in the war. High praise indeed from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes, in his book on the Great Boer War. He was referring to a two-week siege at a British staging post on the Elands River near the farmstead of Brackfontaine in the Western Transvaal. Surrounded and subjected to constant artillery and sniper fire, the garrison dug in and held their ground, even after they were offered an honourable surrender. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. Hey everyone, welcome back. Just going to take a quick opportunity to say a big thank you to Gary Evans. He sent me a photo of the Korean War Memorial in Washington with a plaque showing the number of dead, wounded and missing Australians from the war. I had no idea such a memorial existed, so it was quite a surprise to see it. So thank you, Gary. It was really appreciated. And we've got an episode coming up soon which tells one of the stories from Korea, so keep an eye out. And so on to today's episode. At the outbreak of the Second South African War, the Boer War, the highly mobile Boer forces quickly laid siege to three important British-held towns, Ladysmith, Kimberley and Mafeking. Mafeking, in the northern region of the Transvaal, was held by the future founder of the Boy Scout movement, Colonel Robert Baden-Powell. A rail junction and intersection of some main roads made holding the town vital if the British were to conduct future operations in the area, which they planned to do as it provided the best possible option for a move on Pretoria, the Boer capital. A large Boer force had surrounded the town and prevented any reinforcements or supplies from entering. Baden-Powell oversaw an impressive defensive effort, but food and other necessities began to run low and they could only hold out for so long. A relief party would need to be sent. And it was. A flying column of over a thousand troops under the command of Colonel Brian Marne was on its way from the south to effect the relief of Mafeking. At the same time, another force was making its way from Beira in Portuguese East Africa now Mozambique, to join up with Marne. This second column included Canadian artillery and men from the 3rd Contingent of the Queensland Mounted Infantry, henceforth referred to as 3QMI. Now 3QMI played a vital role at the relief of Mafeking. They sat in the hills and watched. So the relief has very little to do with Australian military history. But as a means of explaining why Australian troops were in this part of South Africa, it's a good starting point. I promise that from this point on, events will be relevant to Australia. With Mafeking relieved after their 217-day siege, the march on Pretoria could now proceed. Three QMI 
joined the column marching west, providing scouting and flank protection for the main force as far as Zerust. Events further west at Rustenburg required some urgent attention, and as the Queenslanders were the more mobile force, they headed on. In a nutshell, by this stage of the war, various agreements had been reached, and many Boer combatants had agreed to surrender their weapons. The QMI and some West Australians were to join up with an English unit at Rustenburg to assist with the surrender. Along the way, they passed a staging point between two offshoots of the Elands River, Braxpruitt to the north and Dornspruitt to the south, under the command of British Lieutenant Colonel Charles Hall. The post was garrisoned by men from New South Wales, Victoria, West Australia and Tasmania, as well as some British and Rhodesian units. The post contained between 1,500 and 1,750 horses, mules and cattle, a quantity of ammunition, food and other equipment worth over £100,000, and over 100 wagons. After a brief stay at the post, the QMI joined some troops from West Australia and New South Wales and headed west to Rustenburg. The war was believed to be winding down by this stage. All reports were of the Boers surrendering and the war was over, but the Australians maintained discipline and rode with scouts out. They rode through a narrow valley along the Costa River, perfect ambush territory, but there was nary a sign of anything untoward, so they continued on. But by this stage, unbeknownst to the column, things had changed. Although officially the Boers had surrendered, the more hardline Boers, such as Christian de Vette and Cous de la Rey, would have none of it. They urged all true Boers to continue the fight and to join them. Thousands answered the call and they took up arms again. The war was about to enter its second and more deadly phase. Reading the situation at Rustenburg, the British units figured that discretion was the better part of valour and grabbed their supplies and headed east towards England's River. Along the way they met up with the Australians and after explaining the situation the mounted troops turned around and led the way back. Remember I mentioned that perfect ambush territory across the river? Well, the Boers had snuck in about 400 troops since the Australians first passed through and on the 22nd of July they allowed most of them to enter the valley in front of the convoy and then they opened up. They successfully blocked off the western end of the valley and so no retreat was possible. The Australians could only dismount and take whatever cover they could among the grass and the small rocks on the valley floor. The Boers focused much of their initial fire on the horses. At first glance, you'd be forgiven for thinking, what a bastard act. What did the horses ever do? But the Boers were not cruel animal haters. Far from it. Most of them were farmers and would have taken no pleasure in the killing of animals. But nor were they idiots. It has long been a truth of war that if you can reduce your enemy's mobility while maintaining your own, then you have seriously gained the upper hand. Unfortunately for the horses, they were the Australians' mobility, and many were killed, wounded, or stampeded in panic. The Australians were now stranded in what was the beginning of a very rough six hours, with the Boers skilfully concealed in the hills and bringing in larger numbers until they were in the vicinity of about a thousand strong. The Australians couldn't pinpoint any one position on which they could focus to try and break up the Boer forces. They could do little more than take pot shots at puffs of smoke as the Boers fired. The day wore on and with the rifle fire continuing to rain down on them, at one stage an officer and a group of ten men raised a white flag hoping to surrender. A Lieutenant Colonel Airy of the New South Wales Citizen Bushman saw this and felt that such a move would leave his entire line exposed and so he felt he had little choice but to endorse the surrender. Major Harry Viles of the West Australian troops felt that this was absolutely disgraceful and he made his feelings strongly known and basically stating he would ignore the order and keep fighting. Not that it mattered much either way, the Boers weren't at all in the mood for accepting surrender. 
the saving grace came from an unexpected quarter. A young English woman who lived on a nearby farm saw what was happening and took it upon herself to alert the garrison at Magato Pass. A column was quickly organised and by mid-afternoon they were pushing against the flank of the Boer position and the Boers, feeling that they had made their point, melted away. The Battle of Costa River, as it became known, had caught the Australians unaware but they didn't suffer as heavily as you'd expect. Six killed, three later dying of wounds and 23 wounded and seven missing. But the big losses were in horses. Those whose horses had survived and could be rounded up were used to transport the wounded and whatever troops they could. The rest retrieved their saddles and kit and made their way back to Elands River the old-fashioned way, on foot. Although obviously a defeat, in the overall scheme of things it may have been a positive. It showed that the Boers were still able to mount an effective attack and were operating in the area in numbers. The lesson wasn't entirely lost on the Elands River garrison as the beleaguered column returned. Some efforts were made in the way of defensive structures, mainly placing wagons in strategic positions, but no digging of trenches was undertaken, as the rocky shale that characterised the position made digging nearly impossible. The main position was a rough square shape, with two smaller positions to the southwest, which would later become known as Zouch's Copy and Butter's Copy, named after the lieutenants in charge of those areas. A copy, spelt K-O-P-J-E, is Afrikaans for a small hill. These two positions, particularly Zouch's, would prove to be vital during the coming siege. Despite being hemmed in on three sides by watercourses, the only safe access to fresh water was through Lieutenant Zouch. I've included a map on the website if you want to go and have a look. By the time the column returned from Costa River, the garrison had been supplemented with some of the Canadian artillerymen which had travelled with the QMI to Mafeking. Unfortunately, they didn't bring their artillery with them. The battered survivors of Costa River licked their wounds for a couple of weeks and chipped in with the preparations for defending the camp. But it has to be said that given the warning that the Boer ambush must have been, the defensive preparations could have been a bit more urgent. Anyway, on the eve of the siege, the garrison consisted of 141 from the Queensland Mounted Infantry under the command of Major Tunbridge, 105 men from A Squadron of the New South Wales Citizen Bushmen under Captain Thomas, 42 Victorians and 9 West Australians from the 3rd Bushman Regiment, and two blokes from Tasmania. Also, there were 201 Rhodesians from the British South Africa Police, the Rhodesian Regiment, the South Rhodesian Volunteers, the Bequanaland Protectorate Regiment, along with three Canadians and three Britons and a partridge in a pear tree. Captain Thomas of the New South Wales Bushmen was a man whose deeds at Elands River and other battles in South Africa will be overshadowed by later events which would leave him a broken and shattered man. In late 1901, as Major Thomas, he volunteered his legal skills to represent Harry Breaker Morant, Peter Hancock and George Whitten at their trials for killing Boer prisoners and a German missionary. As a quick aside, I've toyed with the idea of doing an episode on the Morant trial, but keep thinking there's probably not much I can add that hasn't already been said by more notable authors than me. However, if you would like me to do such an episode, pop along to the Facebook site or drop me an email. I'll provide the details at the end of the episode. In the way of firepower, apart from their standard issue Lee Metford and Lee Enfield rifles, the garrison could only muster one or two maximum machine guns and an antiquated seven-pounder screw gun with only about a hundred rounds of ammunition. No doubt you're asking what is a screw gun? Is it a gun which fires screws? Or did they used to refer to the rifling of the barrel as a screw? No, nothing as interesting as that. It was a gun 
which could be carried in two parts and then screwed together when needed. I assumed the intention was to make it easier to transport rather than having to assign horses to drag the thing all around the veldt. It was first developed in the late 1870s, but by 1900 the black powder it was designed to use had been replaced in the Royal Artillery Stables by Cordite, a much cleaner burning propellant. But there were still a few floating around the Empire, and one of them was at Elands River. Their main deficiency seems to be the requirement to be aimed over open sites, meaning they need to have a view of where they were hoping to hit. The black powder used in them sent out massive clouds of white smoke, which obscured their view of the target. Anyone see the obvious problem here? The Boers, on the other hand, two to three thousand of whom were encircling the position, had at their disposal five or six twelve-pounder field guns, three quick-firing one-pound pom-poms, and two machine guns. The pom-pom, named for its distinctive sound when fired, was a much maligned weapon at the start of the war. Against guns which fired nine, twelve, and fifteen-pound shells, a one-pound shell seemed kind of redundant. But what it lacked in punch, it more than made up for in speed. In the time it took to load up one of the bigger guns, a good crew could get half a dozen pom-pom shells downrange over a designated area. Handy when shooting at an enclosed position like, say, in a siege. What the Boers lacked, however, was supplies, and guess what the Elands River garrison had an abundance of. So, as the garrison prepared some rudimentary defences and the survivors of the fight at Costa River licked their wounds, on the night of the 3rd of August, 1900, the Boers slipped into position in the hills surrounding the post and their snipers took up spots on the far banks of the Braxbruit and the Dornsfruit and prepared to attack the following day. On the morning of Saturday, 4th of August, the garrison went about their normal duties. Sentries were relieved, rifles were cleaned and breakfast was made. It all seemed just a normal morning. That was until the Boer snipers opened fire and ruined an otherwise peaceful morning. Shortly after the snipers had announced the opening of festivities, the Boer guns came into action. The southwest section of the perimeter took fire from a 12-pounder and one pom-pom, while the main position received the attention of three guns, a Maxim machine gun and a pom-pom from the east. From the west, another artillery piece and a pom-pom joined in. The shelling was bad enough, but the nature of the ground made it even worse. The hard but brittle shale splintered when the shells exploded, adding razor-sharp shards of stone to the shrapnel from the shell blast. The defenders very quickly found whatever cover they could. In a valiant but futile attempt at a response, the screw gun returned fire and scored a hit on a farmhouse which the enemy riflemen had been using. But not long after that the gun jammed and the crew were unable to get working again. So basically the boars could fire at will with very little return fire. The troops were able to take cover but the livestock weren't so lucky. The shelling killed more than 1,000 horses, cattle and mules. In an attempt to save the rest, the gates were open and the animals allowed to run free. Those which had been killed would stay where they lay for the next 12 days under the blazing sun and adding to the horrific conditions in which the garrison was about to exist. Far from being content to simply lay low and do nothing, Lieutenant James Annette of 3QMI decided they might as well have a crack. He led a small party out about 200 yards, 180 metres, beyond the perimeter to try and take out one of the pom-poms. They slowly moved forward, seemingly without being seen, and when in position, Anat ordered his men to open fire. They accounted for a couple of the gunners, while the others hurriedly rushed to a position on the reverse slope of the hill, leaving the gun behind. Anat and his men held their position and waited to see what would happen next. Soon, a party of boars rushed forward to try and retrieve the gun, but they were forced back by fire from the Queenslanders. 
They waited again. This time, a rope with a hook was seen being tossed from behind the slope, which managed to hook the gun and it was dragged back to safety. With nothing much left to do, Annat led his troops back to the post. At least it was one small victory for the opening day. This plucky Queenslander would be killed later in the siege when a solitary shell, fired after the usual evening cessation, landed just to his right and peppered the right side of his body with shrapnel and stone. His men rushed him to the hospital, but he died shortly after. The barrage and sniping continued throughout the day. However, the garrison were keeping their heads well and truly down and waited until nightfall when they hoped they would be able to move about with some safety and maybe even dig themselves some holes to shelter in the next day. Despite the surprise and the superior firepower of the Boers, casualties for the first day came to eight killed and twenty wounded. The garrison had gotten off lightly under the circumstances. Prior to the evening of 4th of August, the Australians were known for their reluctance to dig defensive holes. During the evening of the 4th of August and into the wee hours of the 5th of August, they completely reversed that reputation. Under the cover of darkness, despite a shortage of picks and shovels, defensive pits were dug around the perimeter. In places where the ground was simply too hard to dig, stones were piled up in front of depressions in the ground to form sangers which the troops could shelter behind. As it turned out, Australians aren't reluctant to dig. They just require overwhelming artillery and sniper fire to provide the necessary inducements. Day two was about the same as day one for the garrison. Boer artillery rained in fairly consistently throughout the day and anyone silly enough to poke their heads up without good reason was risking the attention of snipers. The big difference, from the larger perspective, was the attempt by a British column under Lord Carrington to relieve the besieged troops. The thousand-strong column wound its way towards the post until it got to just under two miles away. At that point, a Boer force under the command of General Lemmer ambushed the column and stopped them in their tracks. Carrington showed all the backbone of a quadriplegic jellyfish and despite casualties of only 17 wounded, he ordered the withdrawal of his column. With tail firmly tucked between legs, he didn't stop until they'd reached Mafeking, destroying many supply dumps along the way to prevent them falling into Boer hands. Needless to say, he wasn't a popular man among his own men, the British command, and especially not the garrison of Elands River. He was ordered to make another attempt, but he took such a circuitous route that the siege was over by the time he arrived. Hoping to seize upon the moment, the Boer commander, Delaray, ordered his troops to cease firing and sent a deputation to the garrison, pointing out that their relief column had been defeated and there was nothing else to gain by holding on. They were informed that the garrison was quite comfortable and they looked forward to the next day's play. Another, more bizarre attempt was made by Baden-Powell to break through to the post on 6th of August. When he was about eight miles away, he sent scouts forward and waited. While waiting, he heard gunfire moving off to the west and, assuming Carrington had successfully extracted the garrison, turned his troops around and headed back the way he'd come. You'd have to wonder why he didn't attempt to confirm his assumption before leaving, but that's just how things were done in the British Army circa the early 1900s. Over that night, further efforts were made to deepen the defences, some of which were roofed using timbers from wrecked wagons, and others joined together with tunnels, allowing some small freedom of movement. Also, a kitchen was built, and most important of all, a hospital was constructed in the centre of the post. Using biscuit boxes, ambulance wagons and canvas, the hospital at least allowed wounded men to be kept out of the sun, although surgery had to be conducted outside. The Boers were careful not to subject the hospital to direct fire, but due to the confined space, it was inevitably struck by ricochets and shrapnel. The medical officer of the QMI, Captain Albert Ducker, 
maintained his hospital throughout the siege, tending the wounded, snatching small amounts of sleep wherever possible. Some native labourers were employed as orderlies, and together they gave the men of the garrison some hope that if they were wounded, they'd at least have a chance of survival. For his efforts, Captain Ducker received the Distinguished Service Order, or DSO. Some of the men managed to get the screw gun up and running again, but now, with fewer than a hundred rounds, it could only be really used as a token counter-battery gun. It had occurred to the Boers sometime during the third day of the siege that they were probably doing severe damage to many of the stores they had been hoping to capture, and so the rate of fire from their artillery eased up a little. They reverted to the more traditional siege tactics of picking off anyone who poked their heads up, starvation, thirst and disease. The livestock which had been killed in the opening salvos had now been baking under the sun for over two days. The smell was frightful. Flies had descended in their thousands. It shouldn't take long for the men to start succumbing to the age-old soldier's disease, dysentery. A greater concern, though, was the supply of water. Without access to fresh water, the troops would struggle to hold on for more than a couple of days. The positions held by Lieutenant Zouch and Butters were vital. The only area which allowed a safe access route and stable enough banks to allow the collection of water were about 900 yards from the main area. Delray knew of this position and knew that if he prevented its usage, then the battle would be as good as won. Over the nights of the 6th and the 7th of August, he ordered attacks against Butters' position. Butters' Rhodesians were well entrenched and had been sighted perfectly. As a Boer attack came in on the first night, Butters ordered his men to fire and the Boers were held. Supporting fire from Lieutenant Zouch settled the matter and the Boers withdrew. On the second night, the Boers attempted to sneak up using a flock of sheep as cover. It was creative, but ultimately it was unsuccessful. Lieutenant Butters was also awarded the DSO for his actions at Elans River. After those setbacks, Delray made no further attempts to cut off that access to water. Full points to him for not wanting to risk the lives of his men. But you'd have to think that, if ever there was a justifiable objective that warranted the risk of high casualties, then this must have been it. As I said, without water, the defenders must have folded within a couple of days. Food and ammunition were not a problem for the garrison, and now that they'd developed their defensive positions, they could technically sit pretty for as long as Delray wanted to play the game. From my amateur strategist position, maybe a harder push was in order. And so the proceedings proceeded. After five days, Delray was once again beginning to feel that a relief column may be sent, and so in an attempt to bring the siege to an end, he offered an honourable surrender. The garrison would be allowed to leave unmolested, the officers with their weapons, so long as the supplies were left intact. Colonel Hall provided the deputation with a letter which politely refused the request. As an addition, Hall is said to have written words to the effect of, Even if I wish to surrender, which I don't, I must inform you that I am in command of Australians, who would cut my throat if I was to try. Nice. At this point, it's worth mentioning that Colonel Hall was suffering from malaria. He was pretty crook before the siege kicked off, and by day five, he was pretty much confined to his bed, and much of the day-to-day -day command of the garrison and organising of the defence was done by Major Tunbridge of the QMI. So effectively, this little shindig in the middle of the Transvaal was the first time in which a predominantly Australian force made up of men from various colonies, or states, was commanded by an Australian officer, 18 years before General John Monash took command of the Anzac Corps in World War I. By this stage, the defenders had decided they wouldn't merely provide targets during the day and dig holes at night. Technically, the ground between them and their enemy's position was no man's land, but they decided to make it their own. 
They couldn't do much during the day, but under cover of darkness, patrols were sent out to harass the Boers and disrupt their preparations for the following day. It also meant that the Boers were obliged to keep some element of protection around their guns and supplies, meaning there were fewer troops available to attempt to cut off access to the water. Maybe that was why Del Rey didn't make any further attempt. This attitude of no man's land belonging to them will resurface on a few occasions throughout Australia's military history, most notably at another great siege, Tobruk. Far from being hemmed in and powerless, the Australians took the fight to Rommel's Africa Corps, just as they did in the Transvaal. Captain Thomas, of the New South Wales Bushmen, was particularly keen on this and led a number of patrols, having the occasional skirmish and generally just hitting back at the enemy who had been pounding them throughout the day. And that was more or less the pattern that continued for almost a week. The Boers bombing and sniping during the day, the garrison heading out at night looking for trouble. Obviously, while all this was going on, the rest of the war was also continuing to progress. The Katagia tribe rose against their Boer masters and started making attacks on farms, and so Delaray was obliged to release some of his troops to go and deal with that problem. He was also becoming increasingly concerned about his reserves of ammunition. He'd poured hundreds of shells into the post, and they showed little sign of discouraging the dogged defenders. Eventually, he decided that if the guns weren't doing much good, then it was better to remove them than risk their loss should a relief party be sent to the post. Over a period of three to four days, the Boer force was reduced to just over 200 men. If the defenders attempted to have a look around during the day, they were fired upon, but in general, things were very quiet. A few nighttime sorties failed to confirm that the Boers were pulling back, and so no attempt was made to force a way out. Both sides more or less sat around to see what would happen next. On 13th of August, Delray sent a runner carrying a message to another commander. A British patrol intercepted the runner and learned that, far from being overrun a week before, the garrison was still holding out. The message was relayed to Lord Kitchener, and two days later he led a force of 10,000 men to break the siege. A force of that size on the march tends to kick up a lot of dust, and Delray, seeing the cloud approaching, knew the game was up and withdrew the remainder of his force. That evening, four men from Western Australia carried a message to the post advising that his lordship would be arriving the following day. And so, on 16th of August, the gallant defenders of the Elands River Post stood to attention to welcome the big man into the position which they had held for 12 days under constant surveillance from an enemy who held all the advantages. But it was the enemy who had ended up having enough and leaving. Kitchener addressed the troops, saying that the defence had been remarkable and, probably not recognising the condescending nature of the term, said only colonials could have held out in such impossible circumstances. Compliments from your own side are all nice and such, but compliments from your enemy commander are even better. Ian Smuts, a senior Boer commander, said after the war that the garrison were heroes who, in the hour of trial, had risen nobly to the occasion. Given the circumstances, the casualties were quite light. Of the soldiers, 12 were killed, 8 of whom were Australian, and 36 wounded. Four African porters were also killed, with 14 wounded, and one European settler was wounded. The dead had been hastily buried under the cover of darkness on the night they were killed. Headstones, which were erected after the siege, still marked the graves, although the bodies were removed shortly after the war and reburied at Swart Ruggins Cemetery. From the Boers' side, although they were unsuccessful, the siege did have other strategic importance. Due to their obligation to attempt to break the siege, the British had to divert troops from the attempt to encircle and capture the Boer commander, Christian de Vett. De Vett avoided capture and went on to raise Boer forces and continue the war for another two years. And here, dear listeners, 
is time for an unpaid self-indulgence. I've written an historical fiction novel based around the Queensland Mounted Infantry at Eelands River. If there are any publishers out there who wish to publish the book, I'm more than willing to let you, so drop me a line. In that book, I close with the line that I will use to close this episode. If the Anzac spirit was born at Gallipoli, surely it was conceived at Eelands River. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it'd be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.